Matchmaking in MMA has got to be one of the hardest jobs. On the one hand, your division needs to be consistent. You want fights that make sense to the fans in terms of progression towards the title. On the other hand, you're also an entertainment product, and so you want fights that are going to end up being exciting. Another difficult aspect of the job is making sure the fights are booked fairly. You don't want huge mismatches or to put a fighter in a bad spot, which just so happens to be the subject of our list today. These 10 fighters got absolutely shafted by matchmakers either due to circumstance, nobody realizing the fight was a bad idea, or just outright malicious intent. It's time to count down some bad booking and commiserate with the fighters who fell victim to it. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and UFC 267 is inbound. So come jump on board with Bet Online, the official partners to MMA On Point. Feeling confident about the fights? This weekend, during our live UFC 267 fight companion featuring Dana White Contender Series prospect Jake Hadley and the voice of Cage Warriors Brad Wharton, you can play along with us using the code ONPOINT to get a 50% sign-up bonus good for up to $1,000. More on that later, but for now, here are 10 fighters who were screwed by by questionable matchmaking. Number 10, Nick Diaz versus Gleason Tebow. As part of the ongoing antitrust lawsuit against the UFC, pre-trial discovery, where the lawyers get to sift through all sorts of requested official documents and conduct depositions, revealed that matchmaker Joe Silva would at times put fighters in matches against tough guys on the prelims in their last contracted bout if it looked like they weren't going to be re-signing with the promotion. Silva was specifically asked about his interaction with a young Nick Diaz and an email found in discovery where he talked about the negotiation tactics for Diaz's contract. The idea being in theory that leaving on a loss in a low-profile bout could tank that fighter's market value to other promotions. Interestingly enough, right before Diaz was to jump ship to the failed Gracie Fighting Championship, he was given a welterweight bout against Gleason Tebow on the prelims of UFC 65. Now, the fight previous against Josh Neer earned Nick's submission of the night at UFC 62, and he was the feature bout on the main card. One fight later, he's off pay-per-view and up against a debuting Tebow who had no name value yet, but was tearing through the Brazilian regional scene and was 16-2. Also, if you know anything about Gleason, you know that he's a takedown machine and smothers his opponents. He's the all-time record holder in the the lightweight division, in fact, for takedowns by a huge margin. And so, as you can imagine, that wouldn't exactly play well into Diaz's type of fight. Despite the brutal booking and three attempts, Tebow was unable to score a takedown against Stockton's first son, and as a result found himself getting TKO'd in the second round. Nick would go on to Pride, Elite XC, and Strike Force. He wouldn't see the Octagon again for five years. Number 9. Michael Bisping vs. Kelvin Gastelum Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. The UFC could absolutely allow Michael Bisping on two weeks' notice to save a card in Shanghai, China, and fight Kelvin Gastelum in the main event, even though three weeks prior, he was knocked down, aka had his brain slammed into his skull, and defeated by George St. Pierre at UFC 217. That doesn't mean you should do it, though, and for the very reason I just laid out. Not to mention, Gastelum is just not someone anybody should ever want to fight. He doesn't win them all, but he sure can cause problems. The card fell apart when Anderson Silva failed an out-of-competition drug test, and so was pulled from the main event. China is a market the UFC has been trying to crack for a long time now, so this event was a big deal for them. They needed somebody with some star power to headline the show. Of course, it's no surprise that Bisbean was ready and willing to do this fight on such short notice, but having just been in a fight where he took some actual damage, it would turn out to be an error on everyone's part. Gastelum would KO Bisbean halfway through the first round. Even worse, this would end up being the Count's final fight. He didn't even get to have a proper send-off. John Anik mentioned having him back for one more card in the UK, but that never materialized. Bisping retired that next May, his final bout a fill-in that was way too soon after his fight with GSP. Number 8. Paulo Costa vs. Johnny Hendricks 
It's hard not to compare MMA to pro wrestling when there are so many aspects of both that end up intersecting, particularly when it comes to the promotion of a big show, not the big show, a major event, or an up-and-coming talent. Much like getting the rub, as they say in pro wrestling, or having a more established star lose to a new talent in order to bolster their reputation, MMA has its own version of that, but it's way more fucked up because fighting is real and wrestling is not. I know, it's dangerous and people get hurt and it's really hard to do. I'm just talking about the predetermined nature of things, wrestling fans, chill. Anyway, such a matchup was made at UFC 217, and it was just awful all around. Paulo Costa was two fights into his UFC career, dude looks like $10 million cash, he's unbeaten, and he's put people away in every single fight. Strap a rocket to this kid and send him to the moon. What better way to show that he means business than by putting him on a massive pay-per-view to kick off the show against a former UFC champion? That's all fine and great, but Johnny Hendricks was in no place for this kind of matchup. Since dropping the welterweight title, he'd lost four of his last five, missed weight twice, moved up to middleweight, missed weight again, and in his previous bout, Tim Bosch TKO'd him in the second round. Hendricks would try to get Costa to the match, but to no avail, he would be outstruck by nearly double and finished in the second. Number 7. CM Punk vs. Mickey Gall When the UFC announced that pro wrestling star CM Punk had signed with the promotion back in December of 2014, fans were pretty much not having any of it. They thought it was silly considering the man had no combat sports experience. It was simply seen as a stunt. He was being signed because he was a star, that was it. Why don't they just have... Who was a popular celebrity in 2014? Imagine Dragons. Why don't they just have Imagine Dragons fight? But then the UFC and Punk did something smart. They didn't rush things. In fact, Punk wouldn't hit the octagon until 2016. During the time in between, he was at Rufus Sport with a whole bunch of champions, learning everything he could about MMA. So it seemed plausible, right? This guy is taking it seriously, he's got a good team around him, and he's not rushing in. The reality, though, was that this was a 37-year-old guy whose body had been taking massive damage for 17 years in the pro wrestling world, and he was just starting this MMA thing from scratch. Against the right opponent, it might have still worked. Then the UFC booked him with Mickey Gall, who won the CM Punk sweepstakes by defeating Mike Jackson. Mickey was the subject of an episode of Dana White's Looking for a Fight, which was genius on their part. This kid already had good exposure, it would help sell the bout. They apparently didn't factor in that he was a stud athlete, an established grappler, half Punk's age, and had some real fight experience. What could possibly go wrong? Gall mauled Phil Brooks for 2 minutes 14 seconds, and everybody probably should have known better on this one. Number 6. Chad Mendez vs. Cody McKenzie Losing a world title fight is certainly a career setback. You've reached the top of the sport, and you came up just a little bit short, so it's understandable that you would need to put some wins together again to get another chance, and usually those bouts are against other near-top contenders. That's how this whole cycle works. For some reason, though, after losing to Jose Aldo at UFC 142 for the featherweight title, the first loss of his entire career, Chad Mendez fought Cody McKenzie. Where was Cody ranked in the featherweight division? He wasn't. He'd never fought at featherweight in the UFC. He came from the Ultimate Fighter. He was 2-2 two and two in the promotion coming into the fight with Mendez, all four bouts at lightweight and on the prelims. And this wasn't a late replacement bout. This was a fight that the UFC put together on purpose and said, yes, this makes total sense. The last guy who fought for the world title in the division that's built like fucking Wolverine against someone who's 50-50 on the Facebook prelims in a different weight class that looks like he might have trouble with a featherweight who's built like fucking Wolverine. Guess what happened? We were all wrong, the fight went the distance and became an instant classic. Just kidding, Mendez finished McKenzie off in just 31 seconds. The fight started with Cody throwing all kinds of kicks until Chad hit him with a body shot and that was it. The first punch that landed was the one that did the job. Mendez would rematch Aldo later that year. Now nah, he had to win five more fights. 
Number 5. Stipe Miocic vs Fabio Maldonado When it comes to main events, the UFC can really get desperate to fill slots. It's one thing if the prelims fall apart, it's one thing if some main card matchups don't pan out, but if you lose the headliner and you can't find a suitable replacement, the whole card is pretty much a wash. The tough Brazil 3 finale was truly cursed. This was meant to have the long-anticipated fight between coaches Vanderlei Silva and Chael Sonnen as the headliner, a fight that would get moved to UFC 175 before getting cancelled there and ultimately going down three years later at Bellator 180, but that's another story for another day. To replace the coaches, the UFC slated Stipe Miocic and Junior Dos Santos. A solid matchup, if I do say so myself. Unfortunately, JDS was forced out with an injury about three weeks before the show. Now, I know that the UFC will scramble and fill in just about anyone they can, but that doesn't mean putting light heavyweight Fabio Maldonado in there with Stone Cold Stipe is a good idea. In fact, it's a horrible idea, one that you see on paper and go, oh god, no. Maldonado was on a three-fight winning streak at 205 pounds, but his most notable fight was still the uncomfortably sustained beating put on him by Glover Teixeira at UFC 153. The guy was too tough for his own good, and now we were going to have to sit there and watch this man take five rounds of punishment from the future heavyweight champion. Luckily, heavyweights must just hit a bit harder, because Miocic put this travesty of a matchup away about halfway through the first round. Maldonado landed two punches. Number 4. Bob Sapp versus Kiyoshi Tamura. If there's one thing that Pride FC loved, it's Japanese pro wrestling stars fighting in real MMA bouts. If there's anything they loved even more, it's for some reason having these stars murdered by giants they have no business fighting. Bob Sapp, while a punchline in MMA today, was not one in 2002. The 6'5", 350-pound beast was a terrifying presence. Sure, he was relatively new to combat sports, but the guy was such a ridiculously huge and powerful athlete that it really didn't matter, especially when fighting a guy like Kiyoshi Tamura, all 5'11", 200 pounds of him. Now, unlike some of the other fighters, Fighters who came from the Japanese pro wrestling scene, Tamura had solid wins in his career. He beat Maurice Smith, Dave Manet, Henzo Gracie, Jeremy Horn, Pat Militich. He was the ring's openweight champion, but he still had no business fighting a guy literally almost double his size. Worse yet, he was just coming off a loss to Vanderlei Silva at Pride 19, where he got KO'd. This wasn't even a New Year's Eve show. At least save the slaughter for a night it's meant to be on, Pride. Come on. Tamura opened up with a hard leg kick, but he might as well have been kicking a grizzly bear. 11 seconds later, the fight was over. Kyoshi was on his back taking shots, wondering who the hell hated him so much as to book this ludicrous fight? Number 3. Sean Gannon vs. Brandon Lee Hinkle This one just made no sense at all. It was like punching yourself in the dick on purpose. Why would you do that? Sean Gannon was signed by the UFC for one reason and one reason only, and that was the fact that he became an internet legend for being the only man to have ever defeated the ultra-popular Kimbo Slice in a street fight. The former Boston police officer only had three professional bouts, and if you've seen the throwdown with Kimbo, you would know that his heart was a lot bigger than his skill set. Okay, so you sign this guy because he's internet famous. He's a brawler, he has very little experience, you're debuting him on a pay-per-view as the co-main event. This fight is going on after Forrest Griffin, who had just won the Ultimate Fighter. So who do you put this new acquisition against? Oh, well, a D2 national champion wrestler with 19 pro fights. What? How did they think that was possibly going to go? It's like the UFC both loved the idea of signing Sean and hated it at the same time. They wanted him in the UFC for his notoriety, but they also wanted to make an example of him to show that those darn street fighters just don't have what it takes to compete in the big leagues. Brandon Lee Hinkle mopped the floor with Gannon, who literally did not land a single significant strike in the entire four-minute, 14-second affair. Following his loss, he was cut from the promotion and never competed professionally again. Number 2. BJ Penn vs. Yair Rodriguez In this sport, the old are often fed to the young, and most nearly every single time it is with brutal results. Seriously, it's like watching some kind of messed up nature show where the leader of the pack is starting to walk a bit slower, so the other animals just rip him to shreds and take over. I honestly don't think that was the UFC's intention, though, when they booked BJ Penn against Yair Rodriguez in January of 2017. The thing about Dana White and his relationship with Baby J, White has said on numerous occasions that he just can't say no to the guy. He's so convincing and so enthusiastic that Dana 
Cormier just buys in every single time, which makes sense when you consider he was on a seven-fight losing streak and booked for another bout when he was cut from the promotion only because he was caught on camera getting KO'd by a bouncer outside a bar. The Rodriguez bout came after the abysmal return to fight Frankie Edgar in 2014, so Penn hadn't fought in three years when he came back to have a go at Yair, and the last time he fought, he looked like a ghost of his former self. Honestly, what did the UFC think was going to happen? Rodriguez was this 10-1 up-and-coming prospect and a killer. The result is a fight that's just hard to watch. Penn was brutalized from horn to horn, somehow surviving the first, only to be mercifully stopped 24 seconds into the next round. After that, Penn would fight talent more his speed, Dennis Seaver, Ryan Hall only because he was a ground guy, and Clay Guida. But that Yair matchup, yikes. Number 1. Valentina Shevchenko vs. Priscilla Cachueta Our number one entry might have ended Mario Yamasaki's career, but there's a bit more blame to go around than just hard hands over there, because this one shouldn't have been booked in the first place. We all know Valentina Shevchenko today as the unstoppable flyweight champion of the world who dances on the graves of her fallen foes and thinks ring car girls are neat. Prior to her move to 125 pounds, though, she was already a well-established talent. Having fought at bantamweight, her only loss is to champion Amanda Nunes, the second bout of which many fans believe she should have been given the judges nod on. Coming off that title loss, she decided to bump down to flyweight, and everybody was super excited. The division needed that star boost, and before she'd even had a fight, she was the front runner to be the next champion. So why in the actual fuck they would take Valentina and place her against Priscilla Cachueta, who was making her UFC debut and only had eight professional total fights, all of which took place on the regional scene, is completely baffling. I'm not saying the division was stacked, but surely there was somebody with a bit more experience that could have been thrown in there with one of the best fighters in the world. The result was one of the most uncomfortable prolonged beatdowns in MMA history. Bullet outstruck her opponent 230-3. to Luckily, things were finally stopped in the second round before detectives would have to be called in. The blame is certainly on Yamasaki for the late stoppage, but the bout itself was highly questionable with Dan Lebitard. Thanks again to our official partners, Bet Online. Make sure to come and join us this weekend for our live UFC 267 in-studio fight companion featuring Dana White Contender Series prospect Jake Hadley and the voice of Cage Warriors Brad Wharton. You can play along with us at betonline.ag using the code on point to get a 50% sign up bonus good for up to a thousand dollars see at the violence fight fans a big big thank you to ben rosette who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his instagram and twitter page at ben rosette Huge shout out to the legendary once and future King Tomas Welsh for editing this video together. Follow him on Instagram at Big Beat Visual. That's beat as in the band from Doug and not a forceful strike. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, and have a wonderful day.